My name's Nicola Lacey. I'm school professor here at LSE, and it's my very, very great pleasure to welcome so many of you here this evening to uh, celebrate and launch a, a magisterial new analysis of class in the 21st century. Um, I'd also like to welcome the many more people who will be watching this event, either through live streaming or somewhat later via podcast. The the event is taking place under the aegis of both the Department of Sociology and LSE's recently launched International Inequalities Institute, which was founded to bring together and advance a rich array of work on inequality across the disciplines at LSE. And we'll actually be stopping the, uh, arresting the, the, the formal proceedings just a few minutes early this evening in order to have quite an exciting announcement about the future of the Institute. But now it's time to hear about this new analysis of social class in the 21st century. Um, I've had uh, the privilege of reading an advanced copy And in in this book, Mike Savage and his co-authors draw on the widely read Great British Class Survey, uh, as well as reporting supplementary research, to develop really a comprehensive interpretation of the changing meaning and yet persisting significance of class. They've set this interpretation in a clear historical perspective, and they've managed all this within the covers of a thoroughly readable, indeed, in my experience, unputdownable paperback. So we're incredibly uh, lucky tonight to have almost all the authors, with the exception of Andrew Miles, with us. Um, And four of them are here on the platform, and they're going to be speaking for sort of about 10 to 15 minutes each, leaving plenty of time then for questions from the floor, at which point I'll be introducing the other four co-authors who are here uh, sitting in the front this evening. And all the authors will be available to sign the book afterwards, and I'll remind you of that at, at the end. So just to um, simplify the choreography this evening, I'm going to introduce all four speakers right at the start and then uh, get them to come up and speak. So first of all, Fiona Devine, who will will be speaking first. And Fiona's going to give us an overview of the project as a whole. Fiona is currently head of Manchester Business School, and she was previously head of Manchester University's School of Social Sciences, co-director of the ESRC Centre for Research on Socio-Cultural Change. She's known internationally for her research on social mobility and stratification, including her book Class Practices, which examined the strategies of middle-class parents for their children's education and careers, as well as for her leadership of the Great British Class Survey. Next, we'll hear from... Paul Wakeling, here to the right, or your left, rather. Uh, Paul's senior lecturer in the education department at the University of York. He's one of Britain's leading sociologists of higher education, and he's written extensively on how postgraduate studies affect social mobility. Paul will talk about the chapter of the book showing how graduating from particular universities affects class position. Third, we'll hear from Lisa McKenzie at the other end of the panel, who will talk about the chapter of the book which focuses on the precariat. 
Lisa spent her early life living on St Anne's Estate in Nottingham, which was the site of Coates and Silburn's classic study, Poverty, Forgotten Englishman. She went to Nottingham as a mature student, where she also did her PhD, which was recently published as Getting By to Much Very Well-Deserved Acclaim. She moved here to LSE in 2012 to work on the Great British Class Survey. Last but not least, to Lisa's right, we'll hear from Mike Savage, who'll draw the threads of the book's arguments together. One of the most influential sociologists working on class anywhere in the world, and justly celebrated for books such as The Dynamics of Working Class Politics, Class Analysis and Social Transformation, and Identities and Social Change in Britain since 1940, Mike moved to LSE in 2012 after working at the University of York and at Manchester University, where he was founding director of the ESRC Centre for Research on Sociocultural Change, and where he and Fiona developed together the Great British Class Survey. Mike is Professor of Sociology, as well as Head of the Sociology Department and Co-Director with Professor John Hills of the International Inequalities Institute. So now I would very much like to to, uh, hand over to Fiona to get the conversation going. So thank you very much, Nicola. So can everybody hear me? Good, thank you. Right, let's have a look. Okay. So as you hear, have heard, we're going to be talking about um, a book to be published this Thursday, Social Class in the 21st Century, by Mike and, and a team of colleagues which we have listed up here. Um, with the one exception, Andy Miles, all of us are here this evening and colleagues will be joining us on the stage shortly. Um, we were and I had the pleasure of working with a wider group of of colleagues across a number of universities over the duration of this project, and also, of course, drew on advice from lots of other colleagues as well. So I want to talk, first of all, about the pitch, if you like, the BBC's pitch. Um, So, And first, before I do that, I should talk a little bit about the BBC lab. You'll see the icon there. So the BBC uh, Lab UK was created, it doesn't exist any longer, has been uh, merged into other uh, structures, but was something uh, that was created by, by, by the BBC to create public value in its activities with, uh, in relation to two things. And that is in the creation of peer-reviewed scientific knowledge, so it wanted to be in, involved in the production of that type of knowledge. And then secondly, to produce that sort of knowledge that it could then use for popular content for BBC broadcast uh, and web activities. So uh, the BBC and a particular colleague, Philip Trippenbaum, um, who headed up the BBC UK lab, pitched to his bosses an idea about doing research on class. And as you'll see, it's, the pitch was this. It said that the British are obsessed with class, but does the traditional hierarchy of working middle and upper class really exist anymore? And does social class even matter in 20th century Britain? And uh, this found favour with his bosses uh, and off the project went with the BBC UK lab. 
Um, we've just put the icon there, which is that traditional icon, the um, picture of, of course, John Cleese uh, and the two Ronnies capturing what we might think of as, as the traditional hierarchy. Uh, just Googling this morning, I discovered that it does actually have its own Wikipedia entry um, and that it was first broadcast in 1966 um, on the Frost Report. So, um, as I say, Mike was approached by the BBC in 2009 to conduct a web survey class in conjunction with the BBC UK Lab. Uh, Mike approached me uh, and we developed the idea of, uh, or were associated with, the capitals or resources approaches to class. So thinking about social class in terms of differential opportunities and constraints about the accumulation of advantage and disadvantage and particularly focusing on three capitals economic, cultural and social capital and here particularly influenced by the work of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu and his ideas of the significance of cultural capital thinking about particular types of knowledge and how that is used to confer advantage uh, and reproduce inequalities, so a form of stratification in, in contemporary society. So we were drawing on those ideas as a theoretical background to the research. Uh, and pr- colleagues working with us when Mike was at Manchester, uh, we've already heard reference to the um, Cresc. Um, so we were drawing on the work of colleagues such as Tony Bennett, Elizabeth Silver, both at the Open University, uh, and Alan Ward, also at the University of Manchester. So we were involved in the design of a web survey which contained various questions on income, the value of home and savings as a measure of economic capital. We looked at people's cultural interests and activities and tastes as as an operationalisation of cultural capital. And then we asked people about the number and status of people they know as a measure of social capital. So the survey was launched by the BBC in January 2011 and, and enjoyed, as you would expect, given we were working with the BBC, considerable media attention including indeed a spot for Mike on The One Show. So I don't know if people follow The One Show, but it's not somewhere that sociologists often pop up. (laughs) Anyway, so there we had a gig there. Uh, And the survey was completed by over 161,000 respondents um, within a four-month period, uh, which we were very pleased about, of course. Now, as you might expect with a web survey uh, conducted and on the BBC website... Um, we did find that we had drawn in, as you would expect, a BBC audience. So we decided, and indeed the BBC supported um, financially and otherwise, uh, with an additional face-to-face survey of 1,026 respondents by the survey organisation GFK, which allowed us to, to generate a more representative sample And we also, I should stress, did 50 in-depth qualitative interviews which all team members were involved in around the country in 2014. So we had a real mix of of empirical material there for which we could work with. Um, We had to spend quite a considerable amount of time 
you know, bringing together and analysing the face-to-face survey data with the Great British Class survey data. Um, of course, it was web data, which is a kind of new form of data. And as I say, that took us quite some time and we took went plenty of advice in terms of the analysis of that and, as I say, combined it with this qualitative work. So the results were then um, announced, and um, in April 2013, we did um, an inaugural lecture at the BSA, British Sociological Association Conference, uh, and the paper that we had written with the first results was published simultaneously in the BSA journal Sociology. Uh, And here... Um, in both the uh, plenary session at the BSA and in sociology. Um, We outlined, of course, the theoretical background to to the research, uh, the methodology that we'd used, of course, and then talking about the empirical findings. And there there we talked about um, the seven classes that we identified, and I explain in a moment why I say infamous in a moment. So we identified seven classes... Um, And as you'll see, we went through from the elite through to the precariat. Uh, I've put up on on the screen uh, the percentage attached to each of those uh, groupings. Uh, And effectively, what we did was um, analyse the data. And these classes represent bundles of capitals, if you like. Uh, So for the elite, for example, uh, a member of the elite has... You know, high levels of all three capitals. Members of the precariat have um, less than anybody else of all of those three uh, capitals. And then in between, you get different clusters. So, for example, uh, the emerging service workers are a group of people who might have uh, quite low economic capital but have quite high cultural capital and reasonably high social capital as well. Uh, Why I say infamous is then, as we've gone on to do the analysis and the way in which we've written the book, we've not been preoccupied by these classes and these class boundaries. Um, If anything, given our theoretical preoccupations and with being influenced by the work of Bourdieu, we've been interested in boundaries and boundary-making and about the accumulation of advantage and disadvantage and not about the kind of uh, spending lots of time creating and and analysing discrete boundaries between these classes because we don't think that this is necessarily that clear-cut. Now, in terms of our key academic messages, then, what we wanted to emphasise is particularly is that there's polarisation between the top and the bottom with, our, as I say, we identified an advantaged elite and a disadvantaged precariat. And this is important to us because in a lot of survey research, often the elite are not included. They're not the group of people that tend to uh, fill in surveys, of course. And the same is also true of the precariat, which Lisa will be talking about shortly. It's another group that tends to disappear from standard survey research. We also emphasise fragmentation in the middle. And as I say, the divide between the established middle class and the traditional working class not being so clear-cut as as in the past, and there being much more porous boundaries. 
Uh, and also what was important to us is that we could talk about polarisation and fragmentation at the same time. I think in the past there's been a tendency for sociologists either to emphasise fragmentation or polarisation, but we were able to talk about both. We also emphasise that class in early 21st century uh, Britain um, is not about the class of the early 20th century. Um, Somehow we needed to find a way of talking about class without going back to old traditional stereotypes and particularly those of of the early 20th century. So talking about how Class has changed, class boundaries have changed over time, but we should still be able to talk about class and that it is meaningful in the UK today. And indeed, interestingly, a lot of the commentary in the newspapers following the the publication of the results, uh, and this is across the political spectrum, was actually quite favourable to the study, and I think partly because we could talk about change you know that the class, we can talk about class, but we're not talking about uh, a traditional middle class, a traditional working class, as I say, of the early 20th century, because there have been so many economic changes, changes in the occupational structure, industrial restructuring, cultural change, and social change more widely. So we had a, an incredible public response to that, uh, to the publications of the, of the results and, and the attention that it received in the press. And a further 164,000 members of the public completed the online survey, taking the total sample to over 325,000, which is one of the biggest surveys, if not the biggest survey of class in the UK, which is now also publicly available in the data archive for for people to analyse as well. Over 9 million people completed a class calculator, which was on the BBC website by the end of 2014. And this was a little device um, that the BBC created probably in the last week or so uh, before the results were published, where um, people could fill in five questions uh, and be identified with a class. Uh, and people seem to have a lot of fun with this, and there was extensive sharing via Facebook and Twitter. The story also went global with reportage in the New York Times, and it was the most reported story in 2013. And there was considerable press interest in countries like Brazil, Russia, China, uh, and Australia. So just talking about the dynamics of class divisions very quickly, and I'm close to summing up. I think why this uh, survey uh, tapped and enjoyed uh, so much public attention is that it was very much our discussion of the elite um, chimes with a focus on a group of people who appear to be pulling away from the rest of society in terms of the level of advantages that they enjoy. And, of course, this chimes in particularly with Tom Piketty's work on wealth con- concentration, um, Tony Atkinson's work on uh, patterns and trends in income distribution over the last 70 years. I think the discussion around the precariat particularly has touched a raw, uh, public nerves, raw nerves, because it has very much captured the vulnerable working poor. We're very conscious, for example, since the financial crisis in 2007 and 8 is that while unemployment might not have risen as high as people expected, 
what we have seen is the growth of people on very low pay who do not live on a living wage. And, of course, over the last two weeks, there's been considerable debate about these issues in the context of debates about the loss of tax credits for people who are dependent on them to survive. And then finally, I think it tapped into a public nerve around uh, our middle groups, if you like, and those poorest groups with poorest boundaries, feeling insecure with growing concern about social mobility declining, and also people's concerns for the younger generation of people, not necessarily that young, in terms of getting onto the housing ladder and how that is getting much more difficult for people, especially in London, but across the country as a whole. So I think it tapped into a number of of public concerns in those those respects. And I shall now hand over to Paul. (laughs) Hello. So my first fear was that my uh, cultural references are always, like, teaching 18-year-olds, they're always completely out of time. Uh, so a few people laughed, so I, I guess that people uh, recognise the, the cultural references there, the, the young ones, and I think uh, a very young Stephen Fry uh, down the bottom there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to talk about Chapter 7 of the book, which is focusing on uh, universities within the, the Great British Class Survey. And I think the first thing to, to say about uh, higher education in universities is uh, what a, a kind of phenomenal change we've seen really in the last 50 years in the growth of higher education. Um, so, I mean, this is something with which we're all familiar, uh, but the speed and uh, the kind of revolutionary nature of that growth is what David Baker's called a quiet revolution. So it, it's kind of happened under our noses, and it may be um, you know, the profound shifts that that's led to uh, have maybe uh, you know, not been properly thought through. Uh, but when we look at uh, class and higher education, I think there's a familiar story uh, about universities and the British establishment. Uh, so here we have uh, the, the 13 post-war prime ministers. Uh, please don't ask me to name all of them, but, uh, but here they are. Um, and if we look at which of those are graduates... So bearing in mind our, our, our massive growth, you know, not that long ago, hardly anybody was a graduate. Um, only three of that group are not graduates. So it's only Churchill, uh, Callaghan and Major who didn't go to university. The rest of those, um, as well as almost all of them being uh, white men, they're, they're all, almost all graduates as well. Um, and then if we look at um, the, the proportion who were graduates of the University of Oxford... <laughs> We only see one face disappear, uh, and that was Gordon Brown. And Gordon Brown, uh, many of you may not know because he doesn't use the title, has a PhD uh, from the University of Edinburgh. So this is a uh, a very well uh, elite-educated group. A number of these people uh, um, went to independent schools as well. Um, So we know about politicians. We know about graduates in other uh, elite walks of life as well. Judges, uh, top members of the armed forces, generals and admirals and so on, um, uh, bishops. So there are studies of elites which look at these very specific groups uh, and identify that they come from certain university locations. 
but we don't really know much about the outcomes for graduates from other universities, only very early on in, in graduate careers, really only between one and, and three years after uh, somebody's graduated, do we understand where they've gone to. We know about graduates in general, but what's happened to specific universities' graduates? Now, by way of contrast, we know a lot about access into universities. Uh, so the, uh, this university and many others spend a lot of time looking at the, its intake. Uh, there are uh, teams of people now who work on encouraging people from underrepresented backgrounds to, to apply to university and, and trying to support people in that. And so I think we have a good understanding um, in this area. And this is something that which really has cross-party political support, at least on paper. So very recently, um, in talk of a green paper for higher education, which we're expecting soon, there was a renewed emphasis again on uh, access, and I think the Prime Minister himself actually mentioned it. What we have with the Great British Class Survey is uh, possibly a unique data source. We've got 80,000 graduates in the first, just in the first wave of the survey, and they've given us their university name. So we can look... Uh, we can compare across graduates of different universities uh, and see what the outcomes are for, for people. Not just that very elite group of judges and politicians, but how do people fare in terms of our seven classes. And if we turn now to uh, the seven classes within uh, the, the Great British Class Survey, I think you can see there uh, you know, a real um, unequal distribution of uh, graduates across the classes. So more than half, getting on for three-fifths of our elite class uh, is composed of graduates. So it's not all graduates, but it's, uh, you know, it's a large group within there. Whereas a number of the other groups, like the new affluent workers, the traditional working class and the precariat, have a very low proportion uh, of graduates in those classes. So it's tending to, su to suggest that if you are a graduate, you are um, very likely to have certain kinds of uh, class destinations, and that includes entry to the elite. Um, we can also, we also asked a, a number of questions about economic capital, so people's household savings, people's income, um, and uh, people's house value. Uh, and here, we've just selected out the Russell Group of universities. This is where anybody who graduated from those universities is looking very carefully to see what their uh, value is. This is the, the household, mean household income that we collected in the survey for each of the Russell Group universities. Now, what we're, we're not trying to make a precise prediction here of if you go to the, you know, the University of Sheffield, you are going to get a £53,000 salary. We're trying to look at what's the, the, the relative differences between uh, the different universities. Uh, and I think there's two things to observe from this. So one is that, generally speaking, graduates from the Russell Group, uh, you know, they're, they're not, um, they, they've got good incomes. They've got uh, fairly high incomes. But within that Russell Group of institutions, which holds itself up as a, you know, a particularly select group, there's a real uh, diversity of, of outcome. Um, so we have the, the University of York, which is my own uh, university, uh, where the, the uh, average income in the survey is about 
pounds per annum, uh, up to the University of Oxford where it's 50% higher than that, so it's quite a bit higher. And you can see that there's a a collection of institutions at the top, which includes uh, Oxford uh, and the LSE, um, and the University of London institutions. So people graduating from, uh, from what we might call the golden triangle of universities, Oxford, Cambridge and London institutions, are having these more advantaged outcomes. And if we drill down then to look at uh, the uh, proportion of a university's elite, uh, sorry, the proportion of a university's graduates that uh, we find in the elite class, again we can see these real quite uh, stark differences starting to emerge. So again, this is not a precise estimate, but it's showing you um, some of the kind of uh, hierarchy that we're finding within the data. Um, so at the top there, again, we've got this set of institutions including Oxford, Cambridge uh, and uh, London universities, uh, colleges of the University of London. But there's one or two that are perhaps a bit more surprising. Um, So we see some other uh, former polytechnic universities uh, which are based in London appearing in this list. Uh, And we see some of the Russell Group group not really appearing uh, at the top. So a a strong uh, mission group and geographical skew Uh, to this uh, elite group. And we can see a real concentration of um, elite graduates coming from certain universities. I think this question poses then, uh, sorry, this poses a question of whether universities are, uh, do universities have a role in creating this hierarchy, or are they really simply the conduits through which um, families are perhaps trying to reproduce their advantage. So is it something that's going on in the university itself? Is it uh, something that goes on before? And it's these uh, inequalities and access that are important. What I think is particularly interesting here is the emergence of uh, a kind of global elite of universities, which perhaps in some way matches what we're identifying as an elite class. And this elite is itself very knowing and very kind of... uh, it's very hungry for data about itself. It's very keen to, uh, to rank and uh, to create hierarchies uh, and to situate universities in particular places. Um, so we see the same sorts of processes happening with universities to those which I think Mike is going to talk about um, within class formation uh, in general. The key message, though, I think, is that uh, the elite... Is, uh, is a graduate class. That the elite group is, is mainly, but not exclusively, composed of graduates. But most graduates are not in the elite. Um, and, you know, this might seem not a particularly surprising finding, but we don't have to go very far back to find sociologists talking about all graduates as an elite. And there's a famous book by uh, Robert Kelsall and colleagues, which is called Graduates, the Sociology of Elite. So we've seen this huge change... Uh, really within a very short time uh, and the importance of these university differences emerging. Thank you. Good evening. Um, My name's Lisa McKenzie. I'm going to talk to you about the precariat Uh, The people at the bottom, the people that, although Fiona has said, um, represent about 15% of the population, this group of people, less than 1% of them actually did the survey. 
Um, and I think that was one of the problems with, and I think that for, for me as an ethnographer, as a qualitative researcher, that's one of the problems with um, quantitative research, that there are always people who are not represented. And I think here the interesting thing is, is the people that were not represented were actually the, most, the least powerful people in society. Um, bad for them, good for me because Mike gave me a job to go and do some research on them. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, what, what, we, what the Great British Class Survey realised is that we needed to, to look more in-depth at this group because they were 15% of the population, but they weren't represented in the survey. So I was brought along. Um, I'm going to start my presentation here with Hogarth's Gin Lane, and Beer Street, um, you can actually see the originals across the road um, at the museum. But I always, I always like to sort of go back into history when I start to think about the poor working class, because I don't think that you can ever associate any sort of group, and they're, they're not rootless groups. We all know who they are, and we all have some ideas about how they may have got in their precarious position, or we think that we might have some ideas about how they got in that precarious position. And so what I want to do is just start here. Um, Hogarth's idea was that they were drinking too much gin. Um, you know, there's the woman at the end, the famous woman, who's too, more interested in her alcohol and less in her baby, and the baby is falling to her death. Um, and those pervasive ideas of who the poorest in society are are still with us. So we might look at this today and we might say that's ridiculous. But actually if we start to think about Benefit Street and the poverty porn that's on our televisions every single day, we see this again and again. So these ideas about who the poorest are and why they might be the poorest, which has somehow got something to do with their behaviour, is still with us today. Um, so what I'm going to do is really talk about those people who were missing from the survey and are mostly missing from debates in society. Uh, so who was not in the survey and why? So we've just, I've just, you know, less than 1%, my friend Daniel will tell us about that later, but less, I was surprised that less than 1% of people in the precariat did that. And we start to think about why that might be. Well, I knew straight away. Because if you're at the bottom of society, and you know you are, then why are you going to do a survey or go and do anything that just tells you that you're no good? So what's the point? Um, and that was really what, what, when I went and did the research with groups of people who we, we classed as precaria, that's what they said to me, is we already know where we are. We really don't need you lot in a university to tell us. We know. We're always looking up. And so what I did is I went about with the survey... Um, because the precariat didn't choose to do it. So I kind of made them do it. Um, I went to my groups and the people that I'd been part of the research before, uh, and I took the survey with me, and we did it together. And actually, it was a brilliant sort of methodology. I, I hope to do this sort of methodology again, is to take a survey and do it with people. Not because I was interested in their results, but because I was interested in how they responded to that survey. And this is the front page of the survey. 
I'm going to really sort of slate the survey now. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the front page of the survey, and it says, you know, who do you, who most represents you on this this survey? And the people who I took this to, and they saw this, they were laughing their heads off. It was like, <laughs> you know, someone said. Actually, she's in the audience. Pointed at one of one of the people in there and went, "That's my dad." <laughs> and, and but I think the, the 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 most telling thing about this survey, well, these two actually, the pictures, is there's there's virtually no black people on this survey. So, you know, if you if you if you've got if you're in a black or ethnic minority family, you're not really there. But the other thing is, is everybody looking at this survey knew who they were supposed to be and they knew those un, sort of unsaying signifiers so they knew what the big house meant they knew what the council estate meant they knew what all those hidden meanings meant so they knew that picking one wasn't really about just picking what looks like where they lived they knew that by picking one said so much more and really, for me, that's how class works in Britain. That's the pervasive nature of class inequality in Britain. It's not the stuff that we said. It's the things that go unsaid. So I went on into the survey. And I've got to tell you, when you do this survey with... I did this survey with a group of... Very precarious workers, very, uh, some, some, women, some of the women were cleaners, some of the women did all sorts of things, some of them weren't winging. But when you do this sort of survey with them, you have a great, it's, it, it, we had the best laugh ever. And we got to this bit, and it's always sort of cultural life, you know, tell us what are the things you like to do. So one of the questions, and literally this is how the questions fall. Do you like opera? Have you ever been to the opera? How many times have you been to the opera? So the women in my study kind of looked at me and went, mm. The next question is, do you ever go to bingo? <laughs> have you ever been to bingo? Do you like bingo? So the women that I was doing this survey went, Hmm, Lisa, what do you think they're trying to tell us here? <laughs> They knew, and that was the interesting thing about this research, is they knew exactly what we were doing. They knew. There was no debate. They knew that this was about class. But the other thing what they did is they tried to answer the questions. And this is where, again, I'm quite critical about surveys, because they tried to answer these questions. So when I said to them, have you ever been to the opera? They was like, mm, opera. Uh, I've watched it on the telly. Um, I like the one with the woman in the red dress. And they started to talk about what opera might mean to them. So even though they were, the, the answer was, no, I've never been to opera, there was other things that were, they were talking about. Um, the way that they'd heard classical music at firework displays, for example. And so the way that they were talking about culture for me, was, was a fantastic piece of this research. You know, the bingo question was, I thought, was, you know, was much more crude. You know, the women went, yeah, I've been to bingo. You know, we go on a Monday night, it's half price, and it's a laugh. And I go with my mum and my sisters and whatever. But I think the way that when we started talking about culture became much more interesting. We talked about food. 
What do you think is a good meal? <laughs> well, everybody in my survey, which were builders, cleaners, some sex workers, some people who were unemployed, everybody said to me that a good meal was steak and chips. That was a good meal. That was like, you know, if you were going to take out... I mean, the question says something like, if you're going to go out on a date with your other half, who, you know, what, where are you going to take them? And everyone went steak and chips. That's, that's like shows that you, you know, you've kind of made it in life when you, you've got some steak and chips. However, <laughs> there are other sort of cultural aspects about the way we eat and what we eat. And the other plate, I suppose signifies good taste. I don't know what that is. Um, but apparently that means that you've got good taste. So... But I think the interesting thing there is everybody knows. When I show these pictures, everyone in this audience knows what that means. And they know when they get that plate, you know, they understand what that means. So... Then we got on to sort of other, other pursuits, things that people do. Well, we were talking about, you know, and I was like, well, what do you think about classical music then? What do you think about opera? What do you think about... And I, one of the interesting... I don't know if I've actually got it on here. No, I haven't, but I'll, I'll talk about it. was museums. The museums question was really interesting. When I asked people about museums, have you ever been to museums, two really interesting points came out about this. Was museums was really related to childhood. People really thought about museums as, as being taken as children um, and going on, on school trips, and there's real fond memories about museums. But then the other thing was that particularly women wanted to talk about the museums that they go to now. And they talked about Madame Tussauds. They talked about the Doctor Who Museum. Um, and these were the things that they were talking about, about museums, because to them, they were museums. Um, when, we talk, when I was talking sort of more widely about the way that the things that we like and why we like them, they actually talked about Mrs Brown's Boys, which was... In, was, which actually there was a Guardian article written about, you know, a very snobby article about Mrs. Brown's boys and why it's really rubbish. But actually the people in my, in my study really like Mrs. Brown boys. And when they talked about seeing live theatre, they told me they'd been to see Mrs. Brown's boys because Mrs. Brown's boys was going around the country at the time um, giving live performances. And when we asked about that, they said, well, what, this is this basically, Lisa, because obviously you don't understand, and tell your people down in London, because they don't understand. The crux of this is that one's funny and one's boring. <laughs> and I think when we're thinking about culture and when we're thinking about class, for me, that kind of sums it up. But... I suppose for, when we, we start thinking about class inequality, there's a real serious point to this. Because it, it is not arbitrary, it means something. And when we think about class culture and the way that people acknowledge class, the way that people see class, and then the things that happen to people because of their class background, there is damaging effects. And it comes, it, it comes much more than just snobbery. Because 
you know, we've heard tonight already that there are uh, actual effects of your class background, where you go to school, what, what university you get into. But for me, the tangible thing is the way people see it, stigmatisation and the way people are treated, who is valued, who's valued in society and why they're valued, and that instant um, judgment that we make about people, the way they look, the way they talk, the way they walk. Um, it's interesting that on uh, the slide early, the precariat was that big on it. Um, and I was, it made me really think about George Orwell going through um, Wakefield in the 1930s as a six-foot-five man saying, you know, working-class people are physically smaller. It's like being in a land of troglodytes. And class in Britain is pervasive and it, and it is real and it really does hurt people. And that's why I show lots of images about pe of people who I meet and I research every day because the images tells us much more. So we can talk about the inequalities and we can, talk, we can have the, the, the graphs, but actually when I start showing images of people, every single one of us in this audience will read these images. You'll know what it means. Whether or not you can talk about it or whether or not you can, we can actually have a conversation about it, which I'm finding at the moment is becoming virtually impossible talking about class on any sort of public stage. But the images speak for themselves. And for me, I suppose it comes down to this, to Pierre Bourdieu's analysis of symbolic violence. Working class people and Poor working class people in the precariat in this country are subject to actual violence. But the violence that hurts them more really is, this, is symbolic violence. The violence that keeps them out, keeps them down. The violence that looks down on them, laughs at them, ridicules them, tells them that they're no good. And then when they fail, say, it was your fault. That's it. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I want to try and uh, in some ways follow on the same note by thinking about the issues of our study in terms of politics. And it's, very, um, it's, it's an amazing opportunity and an amazing privilege for all of us, I think, to actually have a chance to talk about the issue of class on a public stage. You know, we don't often get that. And one of the things which I really have taken away from the Great British Class Survey is the way there's a huge public energy and huge public thirst for talking about class. Um, as Fiona was saying, you know, nine million people have done a little quiz. Okay, everyone, everyone dislikes it and objects to it, but they've also have shown interest in what does class mean today. And I think as, as sociologists, we have, in a sense, let down that public interest up till now. We've spent a lot of time discussing our own theoretical preoccupations, deciding whether a particular riff on Marx or Bourdieu or Weber is the best approach and we haven't in a sense gone outside enough and actually learnt from people how class is playing in everyday life. And we've also, I think, spent too much time worrying about particular kinds of measurement of class. As if, you know, if you can measure class in one way with one beautiful variable, then the job is done. Um, and I, I, would, I do want to emphasize that in this book there is lots of theory and lots of, of measurement issues. But this is not a book which is designed just to be about theory or method. It's designed to try and capture 
the public interest in class and give us as academics, um, as sociologists and social scientists, our chance to reflect back on that public debate about the issue. And when I was on, this is just from The Guardian, which came out a week ago, um, this, this phrase about the class war is over, the new politics of class is just beginning. When I was on the Andrew Marsh show last week, I had a chat to him, and he said, oh, I really like the book, but I kept wanting to get to the politics. What is actually the political implications of, of what you're saying? So in my ten minutes, I will try and pull out what I think the politics of the book are. Three points, really. Um, I think the first thing I would make is that we need to move away from the idea that class politics is about grouping people up into, into social groups in which they fight each other, in which they exist as kind of bounded entities and they sort of uh, have some affiliation to a particular class. Now, we can debate whether that ever was the case, that people felt like that, and there's lots of historical evidence that it's never been like that. But it certainly is not like that now. Um, Two-thirds of our respondents did not feel they belonged to a class. People don't, on the whole, feel a huge sense of attachment and belonging to a social class. But, and this is the second point, that does not mean that class doesn't matter, far from it. What that actually means, it generates a great deal of um, slipperiness about using class terms and allows the language of class to be massively mobilised and massively used to stigmatise and group and label and categorise in ways which uh, are, as, as uh, Lisa was showing, highly significant socially. So the game of classification is not one which is an even playing field. And I think one of the arguments of our book is that actually, you know, some people are much more confident about playing that game of classification. Some people feel much more able to uh, browse between genres, ideas and labels and categorise other people, whereas other people feel that they're on the receiving end of those classifications. And in the book we call this the power of emerging cultural capital, the way in which young, well-educated people often have this ability to kind of uh, get involved in very visceral games of classification which have social power and can stigmatise and we ourselves got caught up very much in, these, in this current when the BBC launched uh, the news stories. <laughs> so um, it wasn't long, you know, a few days, a few, few hours after the results came out, endless pastiches of the Great British Class Survey <laughs> appeared on stage, um, some of them having some reference to the three Ronnies, uh, so we saw dogs having a class, we saw clever quizzes about whether eating hummus uh, was a cultural marker. Um, and uh, but what is important here, I think, is that these kinds of quizzes are funny, but there's a humour which appeals to a particular kind of people. You can kind of play in to this way of joking and, and uh, enjoying themselves. Because it's also the case that you can see these forms being used to stigmatise people too. So... We weren't, we weren't uh, you know, a few hours later we found a, a picture of a, a drug dealer class and the issue was that that person knew everybody. They knew all the occupations we asked about. Very clever, very witty, very ironic, but also very socially labelling and implicated in the way in which class classifications are used to judge and categorise. So in a sense, our own project got caught up in this very powerful politics of classification. 
uh, and it's a politics which is uneven and it allows some groups to benefit more than others. Second point is about uh, the crystallisation of elite politics. So one of the big themes, as Fiona was saying about our study, is really, you know, historically we tend to think about the difference between the middle and the working class as being the fundamental boundary. And many people, the key thing is, you know, which of those classes do I belong to? Am I working class? Am I middle class? It is the case in Britain, still a very unusual nation, half the population, when asked think that they are working class, which is really unusual. Most nations, the proportion saying they're middle class is much higher than that. But our argument is really we need to move beyond that very traditional language of class and recognise it's the top layers of society where we're seeing the really fundamental break in the social fabric. And now we can, we can spend a lot of time deciding what to call this, whether it's a 1%, whether it's a, we call it a wealth elite, um, super rich, all these categories that used. But the fundamental thing is this is not just an economic elite. It also has very powerful political consequences. And one of the things that struck me recently, looking at the political debates going on, is that um, you know, the, this elite class and this, this elite mobilization of political power is very concerned with strategically making things happen according to the rules of the game and according to the institutional structures. I remember not so long ago, um, in the 80s, when... Margaret Thatcher, the second and third governments, 83 and 87, were elected on about 40% of the vote. There was quite a lot of discussion about how could their government um, have legitimacy when it only had 40% of the vote. We now have a Conservative government elected with a majority, but only 36% of the vote. And I don't see those debates being so important, because in a way, they have succeeded given the rules of the game which exist in British politics. And that, I think, is a marker of the extent to which elite politics is becoming increasingly distinctive. But we're really concerned to argue as well that if we're looking at the elite, it's not just the old upper-class aristocratic elite. You know, we still have these images from Downton Abbey, you know, the National Trust. They do a lot of, lot of work for us, but they're not really capturing today what is going on, which is the elite class is much more of a corporate business class. They know what they're doing. They know what they're about, and they're at the heart of economic change. And they're also, in a lot of this book, talks about the way in which um, we can see kind of at the top end there are nonlinear effects. So actually it, it's the top few percent of the income distribution, the wealth distribution, that you really see very profound ruptures compared to everybody else. I'll give you a few examples of that. One example of that, this is mm -hmm. data actually from the Labour Force Survey, which is a representative survey, uh, and it breaks down all those some occupations which are in the uh, top class, the senior professional managerial class of the National Statistics Socioeconomic Classification. And the, the occupations in blue are the best paid occupations in the UK. The occupations in red are, they're also in the top NSSEC 1, top professional managerial class, but they are the lowest paid occupations in that class. And there's big differences between them. This is the point. Just saying you are in the top occupational class is not getting at the degree of detail you need to understand what is happening at the top. And if you peruse the names of those occupations, you can see immediately they were all managerial or pilots or army officers jobs. If you look at the occupations in red, um, they have a lot of you know, human capital, these, lot, but they are not in that kind of area. They're professional jobs, a lot of them academics, a lot of them um, clergy. 
and so forth. So there's a big, even within our top occupational classes, we're seeing a big pulling apart between the very um, best-paid occupations and the rest. Third point, uh, the travails of meritocracy. Um, you know, we have this image about tackling inequality in Britain, which is very much to do with, well, yes, we do have big differences economically, but if there's social mobility, that kind of is okay, because people can, they can climb the ladder, they can actually get to the top. And so, so long as we have a kind of meritocratic structure, then we can kind of justify big differentials of income and wealth. Um, and in a way, that, that argument, which is, you know, profoundly evident, Tory party, Labour party, most political parties have a version of that view, has been criticised for a long time. And on the right-hand side, Michael Young with a very famous swinging critique of the myth of the meritocracy in the 1950s. And he pointed out what, what actually will happen in society when uh, you allow simply the well-educated to, to succeed and rise to the top. Is it really going to create a class of society? No, it's going to create a different kind of class, a different kind of class society. And the issue is this, that we still have an image, I think, that by, you know, that the problem is to get away of the, to get rid of the last residues of the old school tie, the last residues of the old boys' club. And if we do that, it'll be okay. And if we make sure that a few more kids go to Oxford who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, that will be enough. But you have to recognise that meritocratic structures are actually the part of the problem of class inequality today. They actually generate the kind of differences in economic, social and cultural capital which we are seeing more and more profoundly marked in Britain as in many other nations. And we've talked about that in, in terms of the class ceiling. Even if you look at the occupations at the top of the class structure, the most privileged ones, those are kids who come from less well-off backgrounds on average earn less money than those who come from more advantaged backgrounds. So again, we're finding at the top end this pulling away of the most privileged. And also, as Paul has pointed out, education institutions, are, you know, we are implicated in this process. So we're not just you know, devices to allow some kind of mobility up and down this uneven distribution. We are, in a sense, creating and generating these kinds of issues. Consider this graph here, which is comparing the chances of people from different occupations coming from the most privileged backgrounds, senior management backgrounds. Um, and these are all only jobs in the top class, top occupational class, NS Sec 1. The point I would make here is if you look at the, the proportion, if you look at those jobs where there's a very high proportion of, of respondents who come from senior management backgrounds, barristers and judges medical practitioners. These are highly meritocratic occupations. You have to have go to university to get there. If you look at many of the jobs at the bottom, IT web designers, a far lower proportion of graduates. So actually having a meritocratic commerce structure does not generate more class equality. It actually allows those with advantages to have a structure which allows those advantages to be perpetuated. So I've tried to be uh, robust in giving you uh, an indication of the kind of arguments which we're trying to make in the book. I think we do need to move beyond political repertoires, which are kind of, you know, conventional ones. We need to think creatively. But I think as people like Piketty have so powerfully argued, you know, we are seeing year on year you know, a steady accumulation of resources uh, and advantages at the top. And the higher up the ladder you go, the more extreme they get. 
Um, and this is an incremental process. So year on year, it's going to get worse. It's rather like climate change. This is, I think, one of the great virtues of Piketty's historical perspective. So even the 2008 financial crash, which we might have thought of as causing huge problems for the super-rich, had a short-term blip of two or three years. Our standard repertoire about saying, well, if we enhance mobility or increase meritocracy, that will deal with the problem isn't enough. Now, I'm not saying I'm not in favour of meritocratic processes, or I am, I am, but they don't address the issue of inequality. Um, and that, what that leads us to, I think, is, is thinking about how do we develop a, a new politics or revive a politics of redistribution, recognising that the inheritance of inequality is something which is going to be more profound unless we try and challenge it systematically and radically. So I hope, you know, in the 480 pages of you know, <laughs> uh, words and tables and figures, there's also a very important political message there. Thank you. Thank you all so much for a really fantastic introduction to the book. And it honestly doesn't feel like 480 pages. Um, I'd like to now invite the other authors who are with us to come and join us on the stage. And I'll, to save time, I'm going to introduce them as they, as they join us. Um, this is Niall Cunningham, who's lecturer in uh, geography from the University of Durham. Next to him is Helene Snee who is lecturer in sociology at Manchester Metropolitan University. And then just joining us here is Daniel Lorison, who's a postdoctoral fellow in sociology here at LSE. And then next to him, Sam Friedman, assistant professor in sociology here at LSE. So um, I think we have people with... Do we have people with microphones? So we have our wonderful stewards are going to bring microphones. I'm going to take three questions in a group, if I may. So could we start with the person on the end of the row up there with the leather jacket yes yes you with the leather jacket yes <laughs> and then would you like to tell us who you are me yes and ask your question <laughs> yes that's you you're the one with the microphone and could I also ask you to keep your questions very brief so hopefully we might be able to get in uh, at least two rounds. No, I'm, I'm an, an Italian that lives in London, and uh, I'm always interested in this kind of debate. Uh, I've been impressed by, about the presentation of a woman with the red hair. Thank <laughs> <laughs> Oh, because I don't remember the name. Woman with the red hair will do. <laughs> and, no, basically... Uh, when, when she said the final statement about what uh, can be um, a kind of uh, social class, uh, I was wondering what she thought can be a solution in order to, to change this kind of uh, attitude. Thank you. And this gentleman here, you see in the cream jacket. I'm Dr. Keith Postler. I'm latterly of the LSE. Um, does the panel find that they note any modifications or alterations that they would have liked to make in the study? Um, perhaps this is a question about the benefit of hindsight. And where do they see the future of this study going? Thank you. 
And third question. David Rosen. I'm a a PhD researcher at King's looking into um, health inequality and cardiovascular disease. Um, It strikes me that we're struggling in trying to overcome this problem. Um, And it seems that the people that are in charge of policymaking, both in government and in the health service, are struggling to understand the drivers of working-class disadvantaged people and can't get under the skin of the behaviour change required to bring equality, even though there's equal access. I just wondered what your, your thoughts on health inequality and class structure. We go to the panel now. Um, I mean, you, you've asked, like, the, the question. <laughs> the, the first question is you've asked the question. What do we do about it? I mean, and one of the things that I tried to show with my part and actually in the book, we do try and show that class inequality is pervasive, particularly in Britain. It's kind of, it's always been with us. That doesn't mean, you know, it's a structural, it's a structural malaise. Um, what do we do about it? You know, that's probably... Uh, you know what? I, I I really don't know. I, I don't know because you know, as someone that's that's felt that symbolic violence, um, as someone that kind of understands it and and sort of sees it every day and experiences it every day in my life, I really don't know what where we would start with that. I mean, people ask me all the time, "What are your three policy? Um, you know, what what policy would you sort of?" Would you would you recommend? And for me now, really, it's just end capitalism. Sam, did you want to say something? Um, I'll uh, <laughs> see if I can follow that. Um, um, end capitalism. It won't be as exciting, I'm sure. Um, just, I mean, on the second question there about um, hindsight, um, I think there's, I mean, there's lots of things that, that I think we would have liked to have done differently. Um, I mean, obviously, I think one of the things that has come out a lot in terms of the, the sociological critique is around the, the representativeness of the sample. Um, and just to sort of say a little bit about one of the strands that we've tried to take forward from here that myself and Daniel have been involved in is this idea of, of a class ceiling. Um, Mike briefly mentioned it there, but the idea that when you look at those who get into the top jobs, um, you see that class origin still matters a lot in terms of people's success once they get there. Um, and I suppose we found this in the Great British Class Survey, but we're very keen almost immediately to see, you know, does this finding stand up if we take it forward and look at more representative data? So that's exactly what we did, and recently we've looked at the Labour Force Survey, which is a huge survey um, that is representative of the British population, and you see exactly the same patterns in relation to income uh, relating to class origin. Um, so in some ways, it gives us a little bit of confidence about the Great British Class Survey, but I think, you know, to some extent with some of these patterns, um, you know, for some of us involved in the project, the immediate thing with with striking findings was to try and find other sources of data to see if if the findings stood up in representative analysis. (laughs) 
Hunter Mayer, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask for one more round very quickly of questions. So, could I have the the lady in the second row, straight ahead of me, please? And I keep your hands up, so I'll I'll send another. Um, um, my name is um, Madhvicharyana. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a recent graduate of sociology from uh, NYU. My question was something that was sort of hinted at in all of your talks, and it's about intergenerational income mobility, and I believe that's some of the worst in the UK. There's a lot of class stickiness, and how much does the book go into that? And I think it was hinted at in the uh, section about education, where clearly institutions of higher education are becoming mediating variables to um, defend one's class status. So. Uh, just is that is that a direction that you would be going into in the future, and how much does the book go into uh, about intergenerational class mobility, income mobility? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, good evening. I'm Debbie Ario. I'm uh, uh, an, uh, a postgraduate student here. I just wanted to look, uh, to touch on your uh, point about educational institutions growing inequalities. I mean, I want to look at it within the context of race. We do know that so many black and ethnic minority people obviously have been able to move up the class uh, ladder because of their access to education. So, so in that sense, I mean, I think it's a contradiction in terms to say that uh, education actually is full of inequality. I think it's really helped a lot of people to move on in life. So, I mean, I don't know, can you share some light on this? Maybe it's my misunderstanding of what you're saying. Thank you. And a final question. Um, Hello. Um, I'm a a sociology teacher, actually, in a school in East London. Um, I'm interested, when teaching um, students who are 18 and making the decision whether or not they should go to university, is going to university the best way to let them achieve upward social mobility? Thank you very much. Um, I'll say a few words and perhaps pass it around a bit. Um, on the issue of intergenerational uh, uh, mobility, we, ha- we don't have good data. We have no data at all upon the income of parents. So basically, we can't really address that question directly. And in fact, in, going back to the previous question about what do I wish we had more questions about, we don't actually have very good questions on economic capital. The Great British Class Survey is wonderful for having lots of questions about cultural activities, although, as, as Lisa was saying, not everyone saw their wonder and their, or, their, or their beauty. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and on social capital too, social networks and who you know, but the economic capital questions could have been better. So I wouldn't want to oversell the value of the Great British Class Survey for those purposes. Um, yeah, I mean, and on the issue of, uh, of race, absolutely. I mean, and I think one of the points out we would make is that there is a lot of mobility, uh, particularly at the upper ranges, uh, sorry, in the middle ranges of the... Of the economic structure, we wouldn't, I mean, we make, we're quite clear in the book, that is the case. We don't want to get into debate about, you know, hardening of class boundaries across the board. Um, but two things I would say. One of them is actually, one of the interesting things is if you take a smaller definition of a kind of our elite class compared to, say, an occupational uh, professional managerial class, that comes over as more, as more white, but commas, than if you take a bigger professional managerial grouping. So whether there's upper mobility of racial minorities into the upper levels, the kind of elite levels, is less, is less clear to me. And then secondly, I would say, I, I did say, 
You know, meritocracy is good in many ways. And it, may, it may well be good for issues of racial equality, but it doesn't necessarily mean class equality is, is even that biased. So I would um, just make that point. Um, chip in. I was just going to chip in in relation to the first question. Even though our um, questions on economic capital were quite limited, as you can imagine, in a questionnaire you can't fit in everything in that you would like. I think still what we were finding on economic capital was very powerful. In fact, the colleague sitting immediately in front of you, John Hills, has documented you know, the accumulation of, of economic capital and the effect that it has on people's life chances. And you know, For example, by the time they get to 65, you know, the kinds of capitals that people have accumulated and the class inequalities that you can see um, is very stark in the UK. So it was good that we were able to reinforce that, that picture, even though we ourselves were not able to go into that in that detail. Yeah. Yes, sorry, just, uh, just to respond to a couple of points. Uh, the gentleman about health inequalities, I don't think we really uh, replied to that. But, um, I mean, I have colleagues who work in this field, and one of the areas that they're studying is Stockton-on-Tees, which is near where I live and near where I'm based. And that's one of the places in England with the worst uh, health outcomes and worst health disparities between people living in an area. And, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that, but what I would say is that if you look at what's happening currently and you look at, you know, ongoing uh, industrial decline and relating to the point about and what, 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 what sort of jobs are coming in to replace those, I mean, that, that's, I think, where I would be, uh, my focus would be in trying to interrogate the relationship between health inequalities and, um, and class. And, and uh, relating to that, I mean, the, the point I think Mike made about how, you know, it's as if listening to ro- local radio as well, it's really interesting, it's as if the fight has gone out of people about these, some of these big, uh, big industrial, um, uh, you know, the, the declines, like the, the, the closure of the steelworks and Teesside. And it's just really interesting how the whole debate has kind of changed now. And I think, you know, it's a bit depressing, but if you're going to kind of counter that, I think some energy needs to be uh, reasserted into that. Uh, in terms of um, the issue about what I would like to see in the class survey to improve it, it would be about movement of people and about work, because we, we know where people end up, we know where people uh, were when they completed the survey, we don't know where they started off, and that would be really interesting in terms of developing this idea about London being a vortex, an elite vortex, and kind of sucking people in and throwing them out as well as, an, as, a, as a vortex will work. Thank you. And the last word to Daniel. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I wanted to respond also to the, the sort of health question and the what can be done question, because I think part of the point of this book, at least for me, is that a lot of what happens in our sort of current class dynamics is that things that are actually class resources are misrecognized as merit. So um, there's lots of evidence uh, in the top jobs that Sam and I have studied, for example, that uh, if you uh, come to a job interview and you're not wearing the clothes that everybody expects you to wear, you know, not that you're not wearing a suit, but it's not the right suit, or you can't talk about the travel that you've done or the skiing that you like to do, um, that's read by many sort of top employers in elite firms as you don't fit here, you're probably not going to be good at this job. Um, and that goes all the way up and down the class structure. So the kinds of things that Lisa talked about 
about as well. So part of the point for me is to, is to deal with that misrecognition of class resources or class tastes as merit or value. Um, and I hope that that's part of what this book does. And I think the stress of being uh, misrecognized as a failure rather than limited by structures is part of what contributes to health inequalities. It's part of why education doesn't work as an elevator as well for, for as many people as well as it could. Um, so that's what I hope this book does. Very good. Well, I'd like to thank everyone, but I mentioned earlier that we were celebrating this evening not only this terrific book, but another very exciting event. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to your final thanks and congratulations to my colleagues on the platform and to join me in um, making, marking this further uh, business of the evening, welcoming Julia Unwin, who, as she comes up, I will introduce you to her. Julia is the chief executive of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and the Joseph Roundtree Housing Trust. Awarded a CBE for her services to consumers, Julia is a major figure in the voluntary and public sectors and very important cause, an alumna of LSE. Indeed. Thank you Julia, for Julia, we're that. so <laughs> delighted to have you here to make your announcement about a, a, a new relationship between the Institute and your Thank foundation. I stand between you and your drinks this evening, so I'm going to be very <laughs> brief indeed. Um, I just want to, first of all, thank the presentation, because we have had such rich evidence of what's going on in society this evening, that it really makes what I want to say particularly timely. Joseph Roundtree Foundation has for decades been researching the causes of poverty, the impacts of poverty, and the solutions, what we can do about it. And we have argued for a long time that poverty is real in the UK. In the way that Lisa described it, it's often overlooked and ignored, but it is real, it causes harm, and most importantly, it's not inevitable. For us, looking for the next 10 years and looking into the future, what's mattered to us is to understand the links between poverty and inequality, because it's not axiomatic that a more equal society will stop people being poor. We might just be more equal. So when the new International Inequalities Institute was formed, it seemed to us that Joseph Rantry Foundation, a natural partner, two organisations that have a long history of concern about social justice, about equality and about poverty. And I'm therefore delighted that we were able to make, for us, a pretty significant grant and start a new partnership with the new institute to look at precisely what the links are between poverty and inequality and how inequality can entrench poverty, but equally how changing attitudes to poverty can challenge inequality. So thank you for being partners with us. We really look forward to working with John, but also everybody else at the LSE. Thank you very much. Julia, I know that you had a rather laborious journey to be with us this evening, and it's really marvellous to, to have you here. Welcome back, and we hope to see you often. Um, so now it just remains to me to uh, remind you about the book signing and the reception. Uh, in my original notes, when we had hoped that Julia would be here at the beginning, my introduction to her started, and before we move to the main business of the evening. So I, I had to rewrite that, but anyway, we are about to move to the reception and book mm-hmm. signing. But before we do that, I know that you will all want to join me in thanking very, very much and congratulating our panel.